Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Paranorm Girl Podcast. I am your host, Kristen. Oh boy, do I have some things to tell you guys. First, thank you for joining me again after a much needed, very necessary hiatus. Uh, A lot has transpired in the past few weeks. I won't bog you down with too many details, but for anyone who missed what I was getting up to, I've been unofficially knighted a redneck, y'all. I put a photo and video of myself and my semi-Pete up on Instagram a couple weeks ago. That's my big boy. I was so nervous that first day pulling him out of the shed. I was sincerely put to the test driving this thing. But by the end of harvest, Pete and I, we found our rhythm. And I do miss him. Until next year, big guy. Um, I hauled winter wheat, spring wheat barley. We cut close to 4,000 acres covered in talcum powder every moment because it all itches, gets in your skin. It's awful. Sweating my ass off one moment, freezing it off the next. I have a newfound appreciation that can only come from doing something for your own self for the work that our farmers do in order to provide the ingredients for the food that ends up on our tables. Learned a lot about farming and the equipment. We worked as a team even when we hated each other. These were long days, not a lot of sleep. Uh, I, I literally learned something new every single day and in doing, developed a sense of confidence that I don't recall ever having had before. Committing yourself to something like Harvest really puts a strain on everything else in your life because there, there's just no time. I, I missed my boyfriend, missed doing my show, missed my animals like crazy, and uh, I just had to adjust rapidly, emotionally and mentally to working closely with a group of people who maybe I didn't agree with on a lot of things. And yes, I'm, I am talking political beliefs, religious beliefs, life beliefs, but... We always had each other's backs because no matter what was said or what happened on that interpersonal level, we were all that we had. And we formed a real bond, as one should expect in an experience like this. Also, I received a giant bag of fresh vegetables out of some random farmer's personal garden, and the queen died. I mean, it's been a lot, dudes. Some paranormal stuff even followed me on my journey. One day, I was up on what is affectionately known in these parts as Goat Ridge. 
tracking my combine driver. We'd been going for about an hour at that point. All was well. And I'm watching him from across this flat part. He's trucking along the cut line, you know, cutting. And he's heading to go behind one of the higher ridges. My plan was to stay down on the flat and wait for him to come around the other side. Then I would sidle up to him and get filled. Keep in mind two things for this story. The main reason I'm wanting to stay down on the flat is because, my dear listeners, I am afraid of heights. <laughs> if, if I don't have to get a load on top of a ridge or a hill, I'm not gonna. I, I'm not going to. No, thank you. Two... You can always tell where the combine drivers are because they are very reminiscent of the Peanuts character Pigpin. So long as they are cutting something, they are constantly throwing up this cloud of exhaust and like chaff dust. So I'm watching as he disappears around the bend and I've got my eyes trained along the top of the ridge to watch for his dirt dust cloud. As soon as he disappeared, I got this very strange very strong compulsion to drive up on the ridge and watch him from above. The feeling was, keep your eyes on him. It was such a strong pull that I did just that, pulled my truck onto the tippy top of this ridge and a park it. And I'm watching him out my window. He's going along for a bit. Everything's fine. Suddenly, he makes a sharp turn away from his cut line and turns perfectly to face me, and I can clearly see now gray smoke coming out of the fan on the side of his machine, like a lot. I radio him, yo, looks like you got some weird smoke coming out, dude, everything all right. He already knew something was up because I watch as he jumps out of his machine, runs around it, and starts pulling straw and stuff that had gotten clogged in the fan. He gets it all clear and goes back around to get in the combine. I'm still watching, and as I'm watching, and he's settling in to get back to it, I see a lot more smoke start to come out of the fan and out of the back where the engine compartment is, and it's really gray, really dark at this point. The next part of the story was just blurry chaos, dudes. I'm jumping out of my truck at this point with my fire extinguisher and I'm on the radio and I tell him, hey man, there's more smoke starting to come out of your machine. I start hauling my butt, slipping and sliding down this ravine where he's parked at the bottom. I I'm waving my arms around, trying to get his attention. I'm falling on my ass. I'm back on the radio calling for anyone else on the crew that we might need, you know, someone to bring the water truck up from the grease station. By the time I get down there, it just stank like melted things and grease and fire. I give him the extinguisher, he pulls the engine compartment open, and this huge cloud of smoke rolls out the back. I was standing maybe 15 feet away, because, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the 80s, all vehicles explode for no good reason at any given moment. Um, from where I was standing, I could hear sizzling, guys, sizzling. So, he's spraying, I'm on the horn with the other combine driver who was just around the corner. He makes it. The possible fire gets under control. Happy ending for everyone involved. No one was hurt. No fire was started in this tinderbox that is a bone-dry field of wheat. I am very thankful it panned out that way. After all of the excitement died down... I was back sitting in my truck just waiting for next steps and, and I'm sitting there thinking over everything and it dawned on me that initial impulse that I had 
to do something I had no intention of doing, starting out, didn't want to do because of my fear of heights, hello, and literally something that under any other normal circumstances, it, it wouldn't have been necessary because he wouldn't have needed to unload until after he'd come out from behind the hill. But the compulsion was drive up onto the ridge, park, and do not take your eyes off of him. So that was kind of cool, kind of paranormal. The other paranormal and very apropos thing that happened took place in the last week. In the metaphorical final hour of our race to the finish line, we had to replace a truck driver with someone new. When he came to introduce himself to me on his first day, his first words out of his mouth were, hey, I'm so-and-so, the other driver was telling me about your show. I'm very interested in your content. I am an INFJ Hayoka empath. What? When I tell you, staring at this 6'3", burly, redneck-looking, he wasn't, but he looked it, redneck-looking trucker telling me not only was he an empath, but that he cared enough to know his personality type and introduced me to a term that apparently sailed right over my head when I was researching empaths, Hayoka. My mouth was on the ground, and huh, we had some fascinating conversations over the course of the following week about his experiences being an empath, specifically a Hayoka empath. I hope I'm saying that right. I think that's how he said it which is a really interesting uh, subject in and of itself. Learning that led me to another concept I missed before, something called a dark empath. We will not get into it now, just word to the wise. Stay away from those guys. Oh, gosh, I, I want to talk more at length before season finale about the Hayoka empath. Um, I'm going to have to do it on another episode because we have a lot to cover for today's subject. And I have just a couple other announcements that I want to get into uh, right quick before we get into it. Um, I was a guest on Nocturnal Frequency Radio for their live-streamed 15th season premiere back a couple Sundays ago. You can still catch that over on their YouTube channel. I had such a great time. Holy cow, did we get into a lot of topics. I had no idea what was going to happen going in. And just a little over two hours later, I had no idea what had just happened. Just kidding. But don't the best conversations feel that way? Anyway, not being biased here, I am my own worst critic. I am telling you, go give our episode a listen and a watch. It was just so good, as are all of their episodes. Just finished reading Journey of Souls by Dr. Michael Newton and wanted to recommend it. Incredible, incredible, incredible book. He's a hypnotherapist who's been regressing patients for decades. He would take them back to go over, like, uh, childhood trauma and help them work through it. At some point, some of his patients started reporting back things that were happening before life. And this whole process that was taking place in the span between lives... And, of course, things that were happening in their past lives. God, this stuff lights my fire. Love talking and learning about it. it. It's just so interesting and curious to me that, for the most part, his patients, when talking about this span between lives, they report a lot of the same things taking place. It's a really fascinating read and very much worth your time and attention. I loved it so much that I'm considering getting into another book of his, Destiny of Souls, for the first book in the PGP book club next month. Please jump on, become a patron. Through the end of the year, I have decided, 
any new patron will be granted access to that book club if that is something that interests you. After the first of the year, it will just go back to those higher tiers. But at the moment, I am just so excited for this book club and the literature that we're going to cover. Um, I'm thinking every other month we'll, we'll delve into something new and have some face-to-face time via Zoom with our other members to discuss and go through it. That sounds absolutely fabulous to me and like a good time. And speaking of next month, Spooktober. I can feel Halloween in my bones. It's in my blood. I am stoked about Halloween this year. I've got a lot of extra content that's going to be released because I knew this year I wanted to do like a whole month-long celebration in honor of my favorite holiday. At the moment, it's looking like there's going to be an extra conversation episode every single week. Um, I have some surprise return guests, some new but fascinating guests lined up for y'all. Uh, just just don't miss it, you guys. Celebrate the season with us. And then, of course, I've got something very special and spooky planned for the Halloween episode I'll be releasing on October 31st. It's, oof, I, oof, I'm not giving anything away, but what I will be talking about literally sends chills through my body. Cannot wait. All right, that's it for the announcer stuff. Um, I knew coming back from hiatus it was going to be crazy and busy, but I'm down. I'm ready. I'm here for it. Okay, let's get into today's episode, Predicting the Future. Precognition. What is up with that? I'm going to kick this one off with something that uh, makes even me scratch my head over a little. It's um, It concerns a study conducted from 2010 to 2012 out of the Critical Care Medical Institute in Belize in the country of Georgia involving 238 critical care patients ranging in age between 20 to 90 years old and their ability to more accurately predict future events over their medical caregivers and fellow patients who were no longer in critical condition. This study concludes that patients in critical care have a better capability of clairvoyance than personnel or other patients, saying the difference was statistically reliable. This is such a weird study, and I am having a bit of trouble with the ethical aspect of it, but here it goes. During the process, everyone involved was supplied with three predictive questions. Who would win, lose, or match any of the games in the World Football Championship? The weather forecast of any given random day? And whether or not a randomly selected fellow critical condition patient was to recover from their condition or not? Here is the very odd information published from the responses. In the football championship question, 45% of personnel and 42% of patients who had overcome their condition correctly predicted the outcomes of these matches, while 71% of the patients still in critical condition were correct in their predictions. Weather was correctly predicted 97% by employees, 95% by patients on the mend, and 98% of the time by patients in critical condition. And as to the correct prediction of the final outcome of treatment of randomly selected critical patients in the clinic, 53% of employees, 51% of non-critical patients, and 62% of patients still in critical condition correctly 
predicted these outcomes. Strange, yes? So, what might a study like this tell us? Honestly, as interesting as it is, it, it leaves me with a lot of questions in regards to the credibility of a study conducted in this way. To begin with, I think that pool of people is far too small to consider whether the results would have any traction with a much larger pool of people. I would like to see that larger study. I also think the lack of diversity included in the pool is a little suspect. Um, I'm also left really wanting to know the premise that would launch a study like this. From the information provided, I'm working from a lot of assumptions here, but the assumptions include that this was a controlled study that it was conducted by scientists and medical personnel, that the Critical Care Medical Institute is a trustworthy facility with only the highest regard taken for actual scientific fact, and this study was conducted only after a pattern of this type of behavior had already been noted under normal circumstances. Yeah, so I have to assume a lot of things in order for me to buy these results. But let's just say for argument's sake... All of these things are true. And these are the very strange results being reported by reputable, science-based, skeptically thorough persons only after one thing, the truth. If that is the case, what can the results of a study like this mean? In 1980, a major survey conducted by George Gallup Jr. discovered that approximately 5% of the adult American population had experienced what is most commonly referred to today as an NDE, near-death experience. In following interviews with experiencers that took place as part of an ongoing study, an interesting pattern emerged, a reported increase of psychic and psi-related phenomena taking place in these people's lives following their experience. In 1982, Richard Kaur analyzed the data taken from a national survey of 547 members of the Association for Research and Enlightenment. Within this data, he was able to make some significant observational comparisons between three distinct groups, 84 NDEers, 105 non-experiencers but who had been close to death, and 358 non-experiencers who had never been close to death. His results showed a statistically significant difference between the groups with the NDEers reporting more psychic and psi-related experiences compared to those other two groups. Let's let our imaginations wander a bit here. If the question is, why would people in critical condition, close to death, or having experienced actual death suddenly be having these experiences that appear to be psychic in nature. How would they be able to do it suddenly with their close proximity to death or trauma? Could it mean that being that close to the mysterious, unseen spiritual world somehow woke something up inside of them? Could it mean that just by having close proximity to the veil, it somehow allows them access to that side of reality? Like, the closer you are, the clearer you see it. Does it mean that only people who have such dramatic and drastic things take place at some point in their lives are the only ones who experience an igniting of psychic gifts? Does it mean that there is a very real possibility that psychic abilities that were reported 
in these studies and papers, such as OBEs, clairaudience, communicating with spiritual beings, and precognition, are actually real. Baba Vanga was a Bulgarian mystic and healer. She was also alleged to be clairvoyant and have precognitive abilities. Vanga, born on October 3, 1911, came into this world prematurely and suffered from health complications right from the start. Her mother would die early on in her childhood, and her father ran into legal trouble with authorities following World War I, causing their family to fall into poverty for many years after all of his property was confiscated as part of the arrest. Despite all these early misfortunes and hurdles, Vanga was considered an intelligent young girl and, by all accounts, an ordinary child with brown eyes and blonde hair. According to Vanga, the turning point in her life took place when a tornado allegedly picked her up, tossed her around for a bit, and threw her into a nearby field. That sounds absolutely crazy, but that is what she reports happened to her. After a long search following the storm, she was found in the field very frightened, unable to open her eyes due to the pain of them being covered and injured with sand and dirt. Even though she would have a partial operation to attempt to heal her injuries, she would gradually lose her eyesight completely. I will be covering some of the prophecies today claimed to have been made by both Vanga and Nostradamus and also Edgar Cayce a little bit later. Um, I do think they are worth taking a look at simply for the information, but take all with a grain of skeptically open-minded salt. As with both of these two people, um, a lot of myth and lore surround them and what they may or may not have said. With Venga, there is certainly a lack of a written record of her predictions, but rather the testimony and secondhand retelling by staff members and people close to her. With Nostradamus, uh, a ton of stuff has been attributed to him that could very well have been misunderstood and messages lost in translation type scenarios. So just keep that in mind as we go through it. All right. It is claimed that Venga predicted two things for this year that have actually come to pass. First, she predicted that major cities around the world would come to experience significant droughts and water shortages this year. July was recorded as one of the driest since 1935 in London, and the government officially announced a drought as of just last month. Similar issues have also been seen in parts of France, Italy, and Portugal with record-breaking droughts and wildfires. The BBC reported just a few weeks ago that the drought across Europe is the worst in 500 years, with several of their most famous rivers running dry. The Global Drought Observatory reported last month that two-thirds of Europe are under a drought warning. The water has run so low in some areas of the world that historical and prehistorical artifacts are being revealed. What has been dubbed the Spanish Stonehenge, dating back to 5000 BCE, currently sits fully exposed in a corner of what was the Valdecanas Reservoir, sitting now at only 28% capacity in Sasseris, Spain. Her other prediction was of major flooding taking place in Australia and Asia. The 2022 Eastern Australia floods 
have been one of the nation's worst recorded flooding disasters. So far, 22 people are known to have died due to this disaster. A thousand schools have been closed down, evacuations have been issued, and food shortages have been reported across the region. Monsoon flooding has occurred across South Asia, including in Afghanistan, Bangladesh, India, Nepal, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. But some of the most heart-wrenching footage I just watched took place in Japan on just August 4th. Evacuation orders had been issued, but homes and infrastructure have been lost. People have been trapped in certain areas and needing to await rescue, and several people across the region are missing. Just terrible. And watching the video clips of these flooding occurrences and of this drought footage, it's all the more eerie that these very well were predicted by one Baba Vanga, a blind Bulgarian mystic back in the 80s. It is thought that a few other accurate predictions Baba Vanga made include the 44th president being a black man, the sinking of a Russian nuclear submarine named the Kursk, though that one, it's thought she believed her vision to be about the destruction of the Russian city of Kursk, and she was also off a year, predicting it would occur in 1999 when the Kursk submarine incident, in fact, took place in 2000. It is said she also foresaw the attacks of 9-11. In 1989, she reportedly said the following, Horror! Horror! The American brethren will fall after being attacked by the steel birds. The wolves will be howling in the bush, and innocent blood will be gushing. The way this would be interpreted is the American brethren represent the Twin Towers, the use of the word bush referring to the president at the time, the wolves of the American military being dispatched in the war on terror, and of course, the innocent people lost that day. Now, again, these predictions that were not cataloged via a written record need to be taken as not fact, but as simply interesting information credited to her and only a possibility that she even said this stuff. But something interesting that I think lends some credibility to these claims that they are correctly remembered predictions of hers is the fact that she was also credited with predicting things that never came to pass. Venga incorrectly predicted the 94 World Cup final would be played between two teams whose names both began with the letter B. It ended up being Brazil and Italy. Luckily, her prediction that the Third World War would begin November 2010 did not come to be. Unluckily, her prediction that cancer would be eradicated at the beginning of the 21st century also did not come to pass. Baba Vanga would succumb to breast cancer on August 11, 1996, a date she predicted that she would indeed die thanks to a dream she had leading up to it. So, real quick, uh, I just watched an incredible documentary called Third Eye Spies. Have you guys seen this yet? I, it's it's an incredible source for some research I'm doing for an upcoming episode all about Stargate, the gateway process, our government's involvement in financial funding of psychic phenomena, and parapsychology's attempts to prove psychic phenomena to be real. I am so excited about this one. Um Something that's been on my mind since watching the documentary was something that Russell Targ, one of the main players in our government's early involvement in remote viewing, and he produced the film, he said something near the end of it. Um, I am going to botch the quote, but it was something to the effect of, the biggest secret is that everyone is psychic. 
Ooh, is this foreshadowing to our season finale? My final conclusion? I don't know yet. Well, I'll just have to wait and see. All righty. Let's take a look at Nostradamus. So, something endlessly frustrating about Nostradamus's predictions are that they were all written in cryptic, poetic quatrains, forever and ever exasperating us with the possible interpretations and reinterpretations, trying to figure out what the hell he was talking about. In 1555, Nostradamus published a collection of 942 quatrains allegedly predicting future events to come, ambiguous at best and possibly poorly translated, as we will talk about a little later. These words are ripe for speculation. For instance, from the depths of the west of Europe, a young child will be born of poor people. He who by his tongue will seduce a great troop, his fame will increase towards the realm of the east. Also this one. Beasts, ferocious with hunger, will cross the rivers. The greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister. Into a cage of iron will the great one be drawn when the child of Germany observes nothing. Both of these quatrains have been thought to be referencing Hitler's rise to power. He was a charismatic speaker. His tongue will seduce. Initiated World War II, a great troop. Hitler, Hister, seems to fit a lot of aspects, except for the parts that do not. He wasn't born poor. His family was comfortably middle class. Hister could very well have been referencing a location known at the time this was written rather than a hint at a name. Nostradamus is credited with a lot of apocalyptic doomsday type predictions. Not sure if anyone remembers his prediction having to do with 9-11. I remember this one. It was all over the internet that went something like this. In the city of God, there will be a great thunder. Two brothers torn apart by chaos. While the fortress endures, the great leader will succumb. A lot of folks gobbled this one up, happy to forward this ish via email to unsuspecting family members. And it would indeed be an incredible description of events that took place on September 11, 2001, written centuries beforehand. Aside from the fact that this quatrain had been written but only a few years prior to the attack by a college student named Neil Marshall. He created and included it in an essay on Nostradamus, using it as part of his larger argument that with enough time, if something is abstract enough, anything could be interpreted after the fact to be an accurate prophecy. He was arguing that the probability was high, this was bound to happen, and I would agree with him. In Marshall's paper, he included an interesting concept that has had many variations throughout history, but I'm rather keen for it in regards to prophesizing and future and fortune-telling. It goes hand-in-hand with cold-reading techniques and shotgunning. He called it the infinite monkey's principle. Simply put, if you had an infinite number of monkeys and put them in front of an infinite amount of typewriters and allowed them to bang out whatever they wanted to, to their heart's content, at some point, one of them would eventually produce the complete works of Shakespeare. Why? How? Because it is inevitable. Any sequence of events which has a non-zero probability of happening, given enough time, will almost certainly eventually occur. 
It has been said that the reason Nostradamus was so cryptic with his published prophecies was due to his fear of being persecuted for heresy by the Inquisition. A valid fear, one would think. Is that enough of a reason for us to believe there really could have been anything to his gobbledygook foretellings? Just going to leave it for you guys to believe what you want about him and them. If you haven't gathered yet, I am slightly skeptical of his prophecies. However, a book came out in 2015 called Nostradamus, The Complete Prophecies for the Future by author Mario Reading. Mario takes great care in his thorough decryption of Nostradamus' work and claimed before his own death just a few years ago that since this translatory book came out, most, if not all, of the quatrains contained within it had come to pass, saying that some of these quatrains he included are really quite stunningly prescient. He worked under the theory that the way in which Nostradamus indexed his entries, that the numbers actually referred to dates. Quatrain 1022 takes place in the year 2022. And it reads thus. Through the pretend fury of divine emotion, the wife of the Great One will be badly wronged. Judges wish to condemn such a doctrine, the victim who will be sacrificed to the ignorant people might not make much sense on its own, but this next entry, Quatrain 672, also taking place in the year 2022, which is what the author thought is what is to follow, is a bit more understandable. This was his translation. Because they disapproved of his divorce, a man who later they considered unworthy. The people will force out the king of the islands, a man will replace who never expected to be king. Mario interpreted these entries as a prediction that the queen would die in the year 2022. Her son, Charles, would abdicate the throne due to resentments, uh, constitutional crises provoked by the Church of England and public unfavor because of his 25-year-old divorce from then Princess Diana, and his son would take up the crown instead. So, if William... Or Harry ends up being king here soon, unexpectedly. I guess we'll have something interesting to talk about, and uh, I, I will need to buy this book to read for myself. One final tidbit on Nostradamus. It is alleged that in 1566, after many years of dealing with a case of extremely painful gout, it turned into edema. In late June, he summoned a lawyer and had him draw up his will, and on the evening of July 1st, it is said that he told his secretary, you will not find me alive at sunrise. So the story goes, the next morning, he was found expired on his bedroom floor. Edgar Casey will be our final subject for today's topic. We're really only going to scratch the surface with him today, and I'm so sad because he was kind of cool, and his story is kind of cool. Edgar Casey, also known as the Sleeping Prophet, the father of New Age, the father of holistic medicine, was born in Hopkinsville, Kentucky in 1877. He is by far one of the most well-documented psychics of all time because he was fairly adamant throughout the years of him practicing what he called a gift from God that all of his readings while under trance be transcribed. 
He was a devout Christian and sincerely wanted to help people and, over the course of his life, would provide over 14,000 readings that are currently archived at the Association for Research and Enlightenment. But according to something he stated, he had already provided almost 9,000 readings prior to the moment the documentation of what he was doing and saying during these sessions was taken a bit more seriously. Most of these readings centered around health-related inquiries, but he claimed to have access to his higher self and a universal consciousness, so he seemed to be able to answer just about any question his clients would ask. His psychic tendencies began fairly early in his life, but the thing that kind of perked my ears up about his journey was mentioned in a docu-style interview in a flick called He Shared the Light. A descendant of Casey's claimed that Edgar was pretty injury and accident prone. He was hit in the back of the head with a baseball. He almost drowned at one time. And there was a story of a stabbing through of his own testicle taking place in his childhood as well. In addition to his own self-injury, his father was reportedly an asshole when drinking and took to smacking his kid around. Tragedy also found Casey when he was very little when he witnessed the drowning of his own grandfather in a pond. Shortly after this event, he reportedly began hearing and communicating with the spirit of said grandfather. Now, this all perked my ears up because of what we were talking about earlier in the episode with critical care patients, people who have had NDEs, people who have experienced, you know, some kind of trauma, and the idea that this event somehow wakes the ability up in folks. It is hard to pinpoint in the research when exactly Casey did start to have prophetic abilities or when his psychic abilities in general started to take place, but it was a possible causation I consider in his case. At age 13, Edgar experienced his first vision. He said he'd been finishing prayers, asking for a sign of what he could do to help his fellow man, when suddenly an angel appeared and told him that his prayers would be answered to stay faithful, and that he would help the sick and the afflicted. There is a pretty well-known story of young Edgar being unable to spell the word cabin. Even in his own words, he had not been the brightest of students. His father took it upon himself at this time to tutor him, drill it into his head, and, I suspect, perhaps beat the knowledge into Edgar. At some point, this Tutoring had gone on so long that Casey begged his father to let him rest his head and sleep for just five minutes. The father left as Casey laid his head down on his book and closed his eyes. Upon his father's return to the room, Edgar knew how to spell cabin and anything else in the book and details from the book and what pages certain words were on. From this point forward, Edgar took to sleeping on all of his books in order to absorb the information. It's interesting lore for sure, but not sure how much of that is dramatized. Edgar also made some interesting prophecies in his time. It's a short list, as his work certainly focused more so on issues at a personal level with folks. Um, Some of these prophecies he got right, some he got wrong, but some he got right. And keep in mind, These aren't up for debate as far as him saying it and what was said due to him being so well documented. Some of the predictions he made that came true include a stock market crash of 1925 and the big crash of 1929, World War I, World War II, the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
communication mergers, the use of blood as a diagnostic tool, and the fall of communism. Things he got wrong. He said China would become an overwhelmingly Christian nation by 1968. New York City would be destroyed in a cataclysm and L.A. would fall into the ocean. That Atlantis would rise again. That Armageddon would take place in 1999. The film Armageddon was released in 1998. Could he have misunderstood the information he was receiving? Moving on. He also said a hall of records would be found beneath the Sphinx that Japan would disappear into the ocean, that the Great Lakes would empty into the Gulf of Mexico, which was confusing to me at first because they, they, they do follow a, a track of rivers already to the Gulf of Mexico, right? Like, like technically, he, he was already, right? But then I took a peek at one of the renditions of World Changes maps according to Edgar Cayce's prophecies. Yikes, dudes. <laughs> just, just go take a look at one. You'll fully understand what he was talking about. Actually, most of these predictions that he got wrong had to do with these massive world changes that he foresaw happening. Playing devil's advocate, I hope that he is not actually right and just got the dates wrong. Because I, I don't know about you. But I have grown up knowing that climate change was a very real threat to our world, that if nothing was done about it, it could have devastating impacts on land masses, bodies of water, coastlines disappearing, mass drought, mass flooding, gone girl glaciers, animal populations dwindling, ecosystems in upheaval, plant life dying out, you know, a lot of Armageddon-y sounding stuff. Could Casey possibly have been seeing the farthest effects of global warming at a time when climate change wasn't even a thing, y'all. I guess we shall see. These next two are predictions he made that have yet to pass. He said that the human lifespan would be greatly extended. Medicine and scientific research have made massive strides in the past 50 years for the elongation of the human lifespan. We are talking about concepts these days that would have seemed science fiction not that long ago, things that are entirely possible now. And my boyfriend, he listens to a few biohacking type podcasts that um, they're covering all of this incredible research into the topic of both life quality, but extension that is taking place. So I don't know, uh, actually, uh, if Casey included anywhere an average amount of years that life would be extended, but... I have to say that it appears we are already well on our way to fulfilling this prophecy. I do think those pieces are already in play. The other prediction, he predicted a design for a self-fueling perpetual motion machine would be discovered. According to physics, a perpetual motion machine is impossible. Never say never, but if a design were to surface of a self-fueling, perpetually moving machine that has zero energy loss for the rest of time as we know it, that would be one of the most amazing discoveries of humanity because that means we just discovered free and endless and infinite energy. But its discovery would also turn the fundamentals of physics on its head. So hey, wouldn't be the first time we've had to adjust our understanding of science. No matter his correct versus incorrect prediction ratio, this is what Casey had to say about the phenomenon. Prophecy is never given for any other purpose than as a warning. 
For this reason, a successful prophecy is one that has been averted and therefore does not happen. I know, you guys. I know. Just as any other psychic has experienced, Casey got his fair share of pushback and skepticism. Famous skeptic and magician James Randi called out his methods used during personal health-related readings, saying, To one who has been through dozens of similar diagnoses as I have, the methods are obvious. It is merely a specialized version of the generalization technique of fortune tellers. Randy may have made this comment because he knew that Casey required his sitters to fill out medical forms prior to these sessions. And if that were the end of the story, yes, of course. I've said it myself during the season. Major red flag, dudes. But the fact of the matter is that many, many, many of Casey's diagnostic readings were not precluded by any medical history of these patients. They were on the spot, or the person wrote into him begging for help, and he he would just transcribe a reading real quick and mail it to him. And oftentimes, his diagnosis skirted around any generalized technique or method, and instead included some incredibly specific health and cure details. Casey, seeming to be doing his readings for the right reasons, would never charge a fee. Instead, he would accept donations, and that is ultimately how he would survive in his later years. Even though Casey was a pretty dang hard worker and and held many regular person positions over the course of his life, he often found himself kind of scraping by, a scenario that very well could have been rectified had he simply charged a fee to read for folks, but again... He would not do that because he did sincerely see his ability as a gift from God that he couldn't make exclusive or inaccessible to some over others. He took this responsibility very seriously and would often overextend himself, sometimes providing seven to eight readings a day when he really only should have been doing maybe one to two. In the end, he would keep up this stressful amount of emotional drain and fatiguing work because he said he couldn't refuse the families who were requesting his help, especially due to the war that was taking place. It took a massive toll on his health, and even within the readings themselves, while he was under trance, he was being scolded by his higher self or guides or the universal consciousness that if he kept up this pace, it would eventually kill him. He did not heed the warning, and in September 1944, he suffered a stroke and died just a few months later on January 3, 1945, a date he predicted that he would die. Interesting stuff. Interesting people. Indisputably prophets. Good guessers. Who can say? I will be keeping an eye out for that Nostradamus one, though, since it supposedly will be coming up here soonish. Even at the end of all of this, I I still don't know if I buy that any of these particular folks were in fact able to predict the future or had any psychic powers, uh, period. But I am open to that possibility that the ability to do so could be real when I maybe really wasn't starting out, not totally, um... That they all predicted their own death dates is a little weird, man. 
That is going to do it for today. Join me next week for the final conversation I've got scheduled before we launch into spooktastic, spookalicious, spooktober. October is going to be real busy here at PGP Studios. Hang on to your hats, folks. Uh, put a finger down, listener edition. Put a finger down if you listened to this episode up to this point. All right. It's going well so far. Put a finger down if you enjoy learning things you've never heard or thought about before about the paranormal. Good. Put a finger down if you like Halloween. Put that finger down. Put a finger down if you think candy corn is neither candy nor has anything to do with corn. And put a finger down if you can count to five. Great. And now that I know we have so much in common and you have fingers that are all very much warmed up and stretched out, turn those little digits right side up and give us a five-star rating and review, would ya? You guys are simply the bomb. Let's get into our final note. It is very easy to discount psychic prediction, precognition. Especially with larger-than-life characters like Baba Vanga, Nostradamus, and Edgar Cayce. They are so far removed from our everyday life and concept of reality. It's easy to look at a track record that is not 100% accurate and throw even the predictions they may have made that came to pass into our skeptical little doubt boxes. Ignoring the fleeting feeling that accompanies the realization that they were right and did at some point see these events coming to pass in a vision, in a bowl of rose water, during a trance, in a dark mirror, what have you. Because the question that remains, and it's a valid one, is how? How could someone know these things before they occur? In Nostradamus' case, centuries before they were to occur. And even if we do find it to be interesting information, at the end of the day, does it really matter if we aren't actually using the information before the event takes place to prevent some calamity? I mean, we haven't yet. These things either do or don't happen, and we just go on with our lives. It's neat if we can make the connection after the fact, like the prediction of the queen. Now we can look at what Nostradamus said and interpret it in a way that fits and point and say, hey, that's weird and cool. Maybe he did have this gift. But then that's kind of where it ends, doesn't it? So I wonder what's the advantage in an ability like this if it cannot be stopped, if we aren't listening, and if it doesn't affect our personal lives? Well, I think the most important things to come out of knowing about and understanding this phenomenon are the adjacent lines of thinking and questioning that can arise from it. It gives birth to an entirely new line of thinking, doesn't it? We can ask, how can someone know something that hasn't happened yet? Well, now we can question the very nature of time. Maybe start to understand that it's not linear. How can Edgar Cayce seem to answer any question he's faced with? Give people cures that maybe he didn't have access to before? Well, let's sit and have a think about this universal consciousness concept for a second. Let's talk about spirit guides. He's getting the information from somewhere. Is there more to spiritual reality? How or why 
do people report suddenly having more of these abilities following a close call with death, a trauma, a severe critical condition? Is there a physical link to the spiritual somehow? I have had this experience. Personally, I have had two precognitive dreams in my life. That's part of the reason why I believe this ability, at least, to be conceivably real. I didn't know that's what they were at the time, and I didn't realize it until after the events had passed. And I remember looking back on those dreams with a rather harsh, skeptical gaze. I thought it was just chance. Had to be, right? No matter how specific and literal they were. But there have been thousands of personal experiences reported over the years just like mine. Some people didn't listen, just like me, didn't know to pay attention. And some actually did. In some cases, it ended up saving lives. Numerous reports have been made about folks who dreamed of the 9-11 attacks beforehand. Numerous reports of strange things happening, causing missed flights, causing people to call in sick. And I think about a concept I covered in season two involving the Mandela effect, retrocausality. It really flips our conscious understanding of time and reality on its head. Things that happen in the future can cause changes to the past and the present. How? Because again, time is not linear. Are folks who pick up on these yet-to-happen future events accessing that plane where all things, events, and people exist simultaneous to one another? Do we intentionally pluck the future event out of the ether? Is it an accidental dip into the very fabric of all that is, was, and will be? I'm getting deep here, I know, but I am arriving at my point. Many studies have been conducted over the last century in controlled laboratory experiments, generating repeatable results. These studies investigate and test retrocausality, premonition, and presentiment, or the feeling of something taking place in the future. In one of Dean Radden's studies, participants were physiologically monitored for predictive anticipatory activity, PAA which is the unconscious phenomenon which seems to be a time-reversed reflection of the usual physiological response to a stimulus. It's postulated to be an unconscious physiological phenomenon that may be thought of as a preview of our conscious awareness of future emotional or arousing events. It resembles precognition or the conscious knowing that something is going to happen before it does. But the important thing to keep in mind here is with PAA, it is entirely unconscious. The participants have no control over these unbiased, unanticipated bodily reactions. They were hooked up to devices that could measure things like change in pupil diameter, electrical uh, conductivity of the skin, Changes were picked up seconds before a randomly selected image appeared on a screen before them. Interestingly, the physiological changes occurred to a greater degree if the image that was being shown was violent or negative in nature. I mean, it's, it's curious that any degree of physiological change took place whatsoever, right? They hadn't been shown the image yet. So, if we can see 
on this much smaller scale, that folks are somehow picking up their reaction to something that hasn't happened yet. I wonder, does this phenomenon correlate to larger occurrences? Can those results translate to a macro scale event, both in our personal lives and on the global stage? It's not so hard for me to see how that is possible. Arise, Atlantis, arise! Stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.